and welcome to Grilling with Simon Rimmer, a podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which I speak to top chefs about their passion for food. I'm going to take our guests on a trip down memory lane to discover what inspired them to get into the profession and make it to the very top of their game. Now, we'll serve up a few simple tips along the way to help improve your skills in the kitchen. And we'll also be talking about outdoor cooking and how to get gorgeous flavours from your barbecue as the weather turns chilly this autumn and winter. We've also got a recipe challenge for our chefs and we'll be giving away a top-of-the-range Weber barbecue in every single episode. Now, we've had their ball already with Nadia Hussain and Gok Wan. We've got the likes of Tom Kerridge, Marcus Waring, Paul Ainsworth and the Hairy Bikers still to come. But today... I'm grilling Rachel Koo. A style icon and entrepreneur, Rachel was an instant hit with her TV show, The Little Paris Kitchen, which saw her preparing dishes in her tiny Belleville flat at various locations around the French capital. Since then, she filmed food shows around the world, released several books, the most recent of which is The Little Swedish Kitchen. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. I am so happy. I'm so delighted you asked me. I'm like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, I think your your life is incredibly interesting. And, you know, always when you when you want guests on, you want people with, with a huge variety. And I just think your story is lovely. But before we get to the story, I mean, you're in London at the moment, but yeah. at the moment you're based in Sweden most of the yes. time. And obviously, yeah. you know, we're in a global pandemic. The whole world is changing. So yeah. how is Sweden different from London? So there are quite a few things that people, you know, have to be aware of. Sweden is twice the size of the UK. I don't know exactly, but and with only 10 million people. So that is kind of like the size of London with the suburbs. So it's a big country, not so many people. And also Swedish culture is very much about adhering to what society expects for you. So, so when the government gave out these guidelines of social distancing, working from home, don't go out if you're ill, all these things which you have in the UK, people adhered to it. And at Easter, there was a recommendation not to travel within the country. And they actually monitored, which is really scary, people's mobile phones and the movement of the mobile phones, all the traffic on the roads, and it was substantially less. So people, you know, didn't go travel to their country cabin which a lot of Swedes have they have a little cabin in the countryside so in general Swedish culture people follow the guidelines when government says please don't do this you know they don't say you you cannot do it but they recommend not doing that then people follow it so I can understand how people feel so frustrated here and it seems like the messaging is so unclear whereas I when I watch Swedish news they're very it's yeah, black and white. Here, here are the rules. Black and yeah. white. Here the, here's what we recommend, and this is what it is, and these are the numbers, the, the research or whatever, the statistics, what the numbers are, and this is what's happening in the different regions. So they're very matter-of-fact, and that's kind of Swedish. I'm no politician, so please, people coming back to me with all this, <laughs> like, but Sweden, da-da-da-da-da. I just, <laughs> like, from my experience, my personal experience of living in Sweden, and from having, you know, I have two young children uh, who are at nursery and they're super strict at nursery. They spend the whole day outside. They have all their special waterproof clothes. And if the slightest sniffle, they don't come to nursery. So they're really strict at the moment. So there are lots of things in place, but the approach has been different, which I think works for Sweden. I don't know whether it would work in the UK. I'm no politician. So, yeah. OK, let's get to your story. So you, you're, yes. you're, you're back. Background is really, really interesting. So, mm. so your background initially is in fashion, and yeah, then you made a big leap. Okay, we'll, we'll go on then. Give it, give us the yeah. background. Give us the, the, right. the Rachel Clue um, audio CV 
and sell it to us. Okay, so I went to art college. I went to St. Martin's in London. I did a kind of media degree, so photography, film, graphics. Ended up doing fashion PR marketing because when I graduated, I couldn't get a paid job. And that was the best job I could get, which was paid. After doing that for a couple of years, I was like, this isn't for me. And I decided after saving up some money to move to Paris and study patisserie. Did that for a while. And then I liked living in Paris and I thought I'd just stay there longer. And then just it took me like good four or five years of hard graft of doing like various different jobs from, you know, looking after kids, selling perfume, telemarketing, teaching English, anything possible to like get into food styling because I was really into food styling. So I got into that a little bit and I started working on other people's cookbooks as like a recipe tester. So I was doing that and then I got a book deal with a French publisher and wrote two cookbooks in French. And after that, I was like, you know what? I really want to work with an English company. Not saying anything about the French, but just want to work. So I just emailed like 10 publishers in the UK saying, hi, my name's Rachel, written two cookbooks. I know you're really busy, but do you have 10 minutes for me to pitch an idea? So I got on the Eurostar from Paris to London and I got three meetings out of my 10 emails and I met these three publishers. One of them was only interested in meeting me because the lady wanted to move to France and do what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) That was a waste of my time. Another one, another publisher said, look, you're not on TV. And this was back in 2011. So I had no TV uh, experience. And then uh, Penguin Random House, or back then they were just Penguin, they were like, love the idea. Let's talk about it more. So, that's so what, what was the idea that you pitched to them? It's the Little Paris Kitchen. It was about yeah. my experience of cooking as a Brit in Paris and how I discovered Paris and like telling that story. And from cooking in my small apartment, which was 21 square meters. I did that, wrote the cookbook. At the same time, I was doing a, my pop-up for two people in my um, flat or studio or whatever you want to call it um, because I wanted to get some uh, feedback from the recipes I was testing didn't want to waste food and I also asked them to give me a little uh, donation towards the ingredients to cover the cost so I was being a bit more mindful about look recipe developing costs so much money and then I was like you know what I think this makes a good tv idea so off I go like emailing people like hi my name's Rachel I'm writing a cookbook about this I think it'd make a good tv show so I met a few production companies and it was really strange because like even back then like people were saying oh you need a man to present with you or oh you're 30 that's a bit old because <laughs> I'm oh. turned 30. things like that but I found a small indie they're like right love your idea let's do a taster. And we did a little taster video and we pitched it to the BBC and they liked it. And that's how it happened on TV. So there you <laughs> it, go. It, it's, <laughs> it's funny because, because you, because you, you raced through that CV in the same way that people ask me about my background, yeah. because you've told that story so many times <laughs> and like for you, it's quite matter of fact, but it's an incredibly impressive way to get both into the food industry to say, right. Okay. You know what? So if we, if we backtrack, yeah. So you you go, right, okay, I'm working in fashion PR. I'd really like to kind of learn about patisserie and live in Paris. Now, that's just bonkers. As a human being with a steady job in London, to then suddenly say, right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to up sticks and kind of go. So where, how long did it take from you to say, deciding in your head, this is what I want to do, to then finding yourself in Paris? What I didn't say was when I was back at art college, I assisted a lot of, 
uh, interior shoots and then ended up assisting on food shoots. And I really liked like food styling. So I was already kind of dabbling in food, but I couldn't get, when I graduated, I couldn't get a paid assisting job. You just had to work for free. And living in London, I couldn't work for free. So that's why I ended up in fashion PR marketing. And then deep down, niggling was like, I really want to work in food, but I don't want to work in a restaurant because I used to waitress as a student. Like, I see what it's like. It's just not my cup of tea. So um, I spoke to some food stylists and they said, look, you either need to go work in a restaurant, wasn't interested, or you need to go to culinary school. You need to up your technical skills. So um, it was kind of a six month process because I started saving money. I started like, so I had my full time job. Then I worked at the weekends. I did babysitting. I made birthday cakes for kids parties, like because I had to save up money for culinary school and culinary school in Paris. It's not cheap. You know, how much? Let, let, let's oh, get down to this. OK, how much? Is so, this was, was back, back in 2006. So yeah. obviously the fees have changed and it was like, I think it was about six thousand pounds. That's a lot of money. Um, yeah. And that was only for two terms because I couldn't afford the whole year. And what I did was I also looked at getting a job as a nanny, a part time nanny to get my like my accommodation covered, like a live in uh, nanny. So I researched into that. And so while I was studying, I also looked after kids um, who turned out it was a Scottish French family. They really liked my cooking. So I would go to the market. (laughs) I would shop for them. I'd cook for them. Even the French grandma liked my shepherd's pie. So (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid food because yeah. I want to talk to you about sort of French marketing degrees. Yeah. All right. So so that's the first bit. So already everyone that's listening is saying, "Oh, okay." I thought that was dead easy. I thought she basically said, "Right, I've got your assault ticket. I'm just gonna roll up." So so there's a big process there and a and a, and a big commitment to do it. So so you did the course. Yeah. And have you always spoken French? Could you speak French anyway? No. no so right. my French when I arrived it was a uh, bonjour, comment allez-vous? Je m'appelle Rachel. I went to French school, which actually I, anybody going to Paris and think, oh, I'll go to language school, forget it. Get a job where you always have to speak French. So I actually right. got a job in one of the big department stores in Paris selling perfume, the worst perfume you could ever sell. Cause it was like, oh, would you like to smell like photocopier fluid or garage? <laughs> or, you know, it was a really conceptual brand, but I had to speak French all the time. I had French colleagues. So that really pushed my conversational French. So it's like, uh, bonjour, comment ça va? Je m'appelle Rachel. Uh, so I have a bit more of a flow, although I'm super rusty now. And especially because I'm learning Swedish, I mix my French and my Swedish together. No one likes to show off, Rachel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, so, so, so you get to that. All right, so, so let, let's then jump forward. So yeah. you, you've then, so you've done the, the first series, done the Little Paris Kitchen, yeah. which was amazing. I remember watching that show, thinking how beautiful it was. And I think that, that was that was what set it apart. It was a really beautiful, beautiful series, not just the way it was shot, but I always love the way in which you go about studying creating and your little sketches and things it's such a it's such a beautiful idea and is that something that you've always done that what that wasn't a, a creation for the show that's actually you yeah so I went to art college and my dad didn't really approve of me going to art college so one of the ways I thought like with my cookbook the little Paris kitchen I did all the illustrations like for the end papers the chapter introductions and then for the tv show they asked well look do I want to do that like some of the title cards for the recipes so that's what I did and I was like 
I actually got a fee for it, an illustration fee. So it was like to prove wow. to my dad my art college degree was worth something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, because I also, a former art student, I've got a degree in fashion ah. textile design. Yeah, I worked for five years as a freelance designer. And almost for, for me, when I was at college, I always worked in bars and restaurants to, to pay my way through. And I think I fell in love with the industry in that way. I think food has always been a big part of it. You know, my, my dad's family, historically, are Italian. My mum's mum was always a kind of great cook. Because your background is beautiful. You know, your dad's Malaysian Chinese. Your mum is Austrian. I mean, yeah. that, is a, that is a tremendous kind of blend of kind of culture. So when, when you were growing up, yeah. I mean, the thing is, you eat what you eat, but you, do you look back now and think, you know, my culinary experience early on was incredible. Yeah, actually, so I grew up in the 80s. Like, yes, I am 40. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and back then, it was really, I was the odd one out. Like, I grew up with, like, beef randang, stir fries, chicken porridge. Um, but then we would always have the schnitzel. Sunday, we always had to have a roast, even though uh -huh. both my parents don't come from that culture. It always had to be a Sunday roast. So I would have my best friend who lived next door and she would have chicken nuggets and chips and fish fingers and peas. <laughs> and I was like, mum, I want chicken nuggets and chips. And like, <laughs> but I got beef rendang and like, you know, it was stir fries and all these like different kind of um, Malaysian or Cantonese dishes. And so looking back, I think it was really yeah. rich. And actually a lot of children nowadays have that experience of food because parents are so well-traveled and they want to, there's not that um, like concept with kids' food that you have to be super bland and boring. You can actually, you know, with my own kids, I'm just like, right, today I've cooked this, try it, give it a go. You know, and I'm how, very much Because your like kids that. are tiny, aren't they? How, how old yes. are your kids, right? Uh, one, one and three. Okay, fine. So, so you know, they they they've got a really beautiful experience to to kind of move forward on. But when when you, it's funny, is it? Because when you look back, like I say, your you, the food that you eat is your food. Yeah. When when I was growing up, my mum has always cooked. She looks good, and my dad always cooked, which is interesting. Because like I'm, you know, I'm a child of the sixties. So when I was sort of early seventies, my dad cooking. Many dads didn't cook back then. And so my yes. dad has always looked at so I think being surrounded by food and being surrounded by good food. And I always think with my kids, who were big now, 22 and 17, even when they were little, if you go and eat somewhere or they go out with their friends and they got rubbish food, they didn't want it because they were used to good flavours rather than yeah. bland flavours. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I always say, you know, people ask me, well, what, how do I, you know, how do I cook for kids? And I'm like, you know what, don't be disheartened, you know, there's so many factors of like um, when you're feeding a child, like sometimes they're tired, sometimes they're not hungry and you just have to, it's just keep on going at it. You know, and like I have days when my kid's like, oh, mum, I'm not going to eat that. That looks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I definitely think if you have a positive experience at home and you, you're just open to different flavors and things like that, then then you build a positive experience for your children to have with food. And I think that's the most important. When you were growing up, did both your mum and dad cook? Or, or... No, just my right, mum. Okay. And my right. mum so, so, so your Austrian learn... mum then learned all this amazing kind of <laughs> yeah. Malaysian cuisine. Wow. So my, my dad's mum, my granny, um, I remember back in the 80s, she flew over once. And, and I have this very vivid memory of her teaching my mum how to cook 
because when my mum first married my dad and she was pregnant with me, she told me that she didn't know how to make curries and my dad liked to have curry for breakfast. She she would have to open this tinned curry and warm it up and it just made her, you know, nauseous with the pregnancy hormones and stuff like that. And so, so, so how about you? When did you start? When do you, when are you aware of, of, of cooking or making food, if not cooking, when you were little? So I remember when I was at primary school that my mum um, used to do a lot of baking with me and I loved baking, you know, like gingerbread people. I have this very strong memory of making gingerbread people <laughs> with uh, <laughs> currants <laughs> as eyes with um, a friend from school. And that was like one of the strong memories. And then we had a sand pit and I was always doing pretend bakeries and making sand cakes and charging like two pence per sand cake so um (laughs) wasn't a very good business I went bankrupt very quickly so uh yeah but um I really loved baking and my mum always there was always home-cooked food we we didn't go out much we didn't have takeaway food um so it was always a home-cooked meal so I was really fortunate my mum um had the time to do that so she did make both my brother and I learn to cook. So like spaghetti bolognese and like, you know, wash the beans or like cut up some vegetables and lay the table. So we were always involved. And I think that's great. You know, you get everybody I, I, involved. I think spaghetti bolognese is something that should actually be on the school curriculum. Because I think genuinely, when you kind of leave school, if you go away to uni or you, you start living on your own, if you can make a good spaghetti bolognese, then you can also make a chili, you can make a lasagna, you can make a, a cottage pie. You know, so the, 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 the list is endless. I think it should be essential to every person's education. Exactly. I definitely agree. I, I really strongly think that there are a few life skills that really need to be taught at school and cooking is one of that because it's not only like sustenance, but it's also an economic thing. You save money if you if you can cook yourself. All right. So, I mean, we, we, we've got the background in the in the second part. I want yes. to talk about how you go about food and 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 how you cook. And um, but before we do that, I'm I'm going to put your brain to the test because oh, no. every, <laughs> our chefs have to take up um, our recipe challenge. Yes. And, and what happens is, so Rachel, we're, we're giving you. You can have any cut of meat, any yeah. bit of fish, any veg to work with. We also have to come up with a marinade or a rub. You have to come up with a sauce and you have to come up with a cold side with it. Now, the twist on this, first of all, you've got to be cooking outdoors on the barbecue. Yeah. And the second thing is you only have 45 seconds to describe it and sell it to me. Now, I've got to say, Nadia Hussain did a fantastic job. Uh, Gokwan, it was like he was (laughs) describing a fashion show. It was was incredible. (laughs) He, he described it in the way in which you would get dressed. And it was very, it was beautifully done. It was, it was almost poetic. So there's no pressure, but you have 45 <laughs> seconds. You can't come out too early because obviously okay. then there's that empty space where I'm, I will All literally right. then just sit there with nothing. And if you ever, okay. I will cut you off. So what All you right. need to do, Rach, when I yeah. say go, then you've got yeah. 45 seconds to tell me what yeah. you're cooking and then sell yeah. it to me. Are you ready? All right. Okay, okay. hold on. Three, two, one, go. Okay, so I'm going to do a crispy, caramelised, buttery cabbage wedges with the most amazing sausages, pink pickled onions, and some uh, pickled mustard seeds to go with it. So for me, butter makes everything better. That is my slogan for everything. (laughs) And in Sweden, they have a tradition of 
cooking outside all year round. We cook outside in the winter with the snow. It's really cozy. So this is the kind of thing you can do all year round. And cabbage is underrated. So you simply take a beautiful, crunchy cabbage. Ten seconds. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, I've got 10 seconds left. Oh, I've already yes, spoken. 10 seconds left. Oh my goodness. So put that Five on the with butter and then you grill that. And with the sausages, you put the onions <laughs> in the vinegar. Oh my oh. goodness, I talk too much. I get too excited. How did anybody do this? This is impossible. It, oh, does it? Right. So you failed. But, I uh, failed. Because, because I want to know the rest of the dish. Tell me the rest of the dish then. So it's really simple. You simply slather loads of butter on the cabbage wedges. You put that on the grill. Then you put the sausages on the grill. You put the onions in, um, red onions, finely sliced, in some um, red wine vinegar with a pinch of sugar, salt, with the mustard seeds. Let that soak. And then you kind of turn the, the cabbage over and uh, so it gets caramelized on both sides. Obviously, you turn the sausages. And then when it comes out, you um, sprinkle on some chives with the onions and that's it. And you've got the little kind of pickled side with the mustard and the um, that onions. Sounds- that sounds so, delicious. Yeah. So, so when you when you're in Sweden, because I yeah. I always think that the, the Swedes like being outside, like you mentioned about kind of school kids. So they will use barbecues all year round, even though it's like you know minus four hundred degrees. <laughs> well, maybe not minus four hundred, <laughs> but um, I mean last year it didn't get that cold, but it's been minus fifteen. It depends where you go. If you go really far up north, then obviously it. It's really cold. So cold that if you breathe, it kind of freezes in the air, you know. <laughs> but in Sweden, they class anything, you know, Stockholm is the south of Sweden. They class it as the south. So I'm in the south of Sweden where, you know, all year round, you really barbecue all year round. And actually, when it's cold outside, it's really cozy. And um, they have a big culture and just really simple barbecues about just sausages and hot dogs. They love a hot dog. I mean, yeah. if you ever go to Sweden, they're like hot dog stands everywhere. So that's like when I'm, um, you know, at the weekend with the family, you know, just grab some sausages, like um, some nice buns. And then if you make a nice pickle, um, it's really lovely. I just keep it simple. I think we get it wrong in the UK. I, th- I think, you know, a-, a lot of the time people sort of see the barbecue is for the summer months and that's it. Barbecuing outside in the cold weather is so much better. Yeah. It's so it's so cozy as well. It really is. And it's something like you can know you can really enjoy, you know, you can um, and you have a, like a nice hot drink. I mean, I've also made some lovely mold wine on the barbecue, you know, obviously you know, nice. like you can grill some oranges and some lovely fruits and you can kind of make them a bit smoky. And then you add that to the red wine and the orange juice and that infuse that into the red wine. So you can make lots of really cozy drinks as well. So it's all about like just embracing that like, oh, it's cold. Yeah. Let's wrap up and let's kind of gather around like that kind of warmth you get. I, I've never been to Stockholm and I'd really, yeah. really like to go. What, would you would you say if someone's going to go for the first time, they should go in the winter rather than the summer? No, come in the summer because you've got the oh, really, really long nights and then you can go because the water's so clean. I mean, Stockholm is like the Venice of the north of lots of little islands. So where I live, we're only 10 minutes from the I mean, I say beach. It's <laughs> it's like fresh water and you've got sand and you can go swimming. So people like um, after work, everybody's out and about and you're swimming and you go walking. And I mean, obviously in the winter, it's really lovely because everything, if you're lucky, it freezes. So you can go skating wow. out into the archipelago if it really goes cold. And then everybody takes, you know, if you take a, a little rucksack with a tiny barbecue, you can, you know, in some areas you can obviously oh, do a little a nice day trip. Do. 
So it's really embracing the outdoors. I mean, Sweden is very much about outdoors. It's not like, um, okay, Berlin, party, party, party. It's more about space, not meeting anybody for a long time. Which yeah. Maybe it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that sounds like my life, but I think it's my, that's my personality rather than anything to do with kind of uh, location. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Social distancing right. comes natural to Swedes. <laughs> yeah, how, how, how lovely. So are you settled there? Are you, do you think that's yeah. going to be where home is going to be? Well, definitely um, in terms of like my kids being young, I mean, Sweden is really supportive in terms of highly subsidised nursery and parental leave. And so for me to have the career I have, I wouldn't be able to do that if I wasn't living in Sweden. I'm happy to pay my high taxes because I see the benefit yeah. of it. All right. Now, before Rachel and I carry on nattering details of our competition, we're giving away a Genesis 2 gas barbecue and Weber Connect smart grilling hub in every single episode of the podcast. How about that? Genesis 2 is a premium gas barbecue that makes it easy to get great tasting food. The smart grilling hub is an accessory which connects to your phone via an app. It guides you step by step through preparing and cooking, even telling you when to flip your food and when it's ready to eat. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. For your chance to win this incredible prize, head to weber.com forward slash grilling. That's weber.com forward slash grilling. We'll be able to find the terms and conditions and the closing date for entries. The competition is open to UK residents only. Now, the Weber website is also the place to find a host of tips for barbecuing in all weathers and seasons, as well as a great range of recipes from beer, chicken, batters to teriyaki pork belly with jasmine rice and even winter pizza so let's go on to the the, the practical side yes. uh, of cooking so we've talked about your history you you we set you the challenge which you failed miserably oh, sorry. Uh, so, so now you're, you're bottom of the list you realize that i think I know, probably maybe... at the moment i think gok's probably number one yeah. then nadia and you are so far <laughs> But you know what? That means I can't get any worse. It means I've got a goal. Yeah. I always love a challenge. I right, can okay. work my way up. Life is about a challenge. I know. <laughs> I failed so much. My life is full of failures. That's why I wouldn't be where I am today. I always think you've got to embrace the failure because you can learn from the failure and it's the Agreed. positive aspects you can take from it. So, yeah. Completely agree. <laughs> When you film my little Paris kitchen, yeah. um, then one of the things that was very apparent is how much you absolutely adored the way in which French food markets operate. Um, and they're so different to the UK. I mean, I know every time I've been to anywhere in France and, yeah. and, and really Italy and Spain as well, it's so different. What, what is it in particular that drives you to, to love them so much? Okay, so when I was living in Paris, I really had my, I had my regular market in my neighborhood, which was twice a week. And I had like my cheese guy, my fruit and veg guy, and you build a rapport, you build a relationship. So I'd go see my fruit and veg guy and he's like, oh, Rachel, this week I have these strawberries only this week. And I, I mean, I had to buy it, you know, that these oh. strawberries were only around for that week. And you get so excited and I love their passion. And that passion really excited me to cook something with. But also I like that personal interaction when I go to the yeah. supermarket. I don't interact with the person at the till in the same way, you know? It's yeah. like, I do say hello and, you know, but that's pretty much it. They, they're they not, uh, you know, it's hard to get very excited about 
something which has been sitting on the shelf for a very long time. Unless it's like my favourite peanut butter or something like yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> well, but there's something really lovely isn't it, about sort of feeling that you are talking to the person with the dirty hands who has actually kind of picked those potatoes. And when they're gone, they're gone. What you're buying is, is what he's taken out of the ground, off the trees, whatever it might be. And when it's gone, it's gone. And the same with everybody, other stall that you're doing. I, I, I love that so much. It's, yes. you know, anybody involved in food, it's absolute heaven. And even if you're not involved in food, you can't help but feel how amazing it is. Yeah, and I have so much respect for farmers. You know, the amount of energy and backbreaking work goes into making whatever you buy. We forget that. You kind of, and that's why I really really think we uh it's great if you're mindful about like not mm. wasting anything because that is like the biggest way you can help in terms of not wasting food so it's I funny love, is it that, yeah. that i think that's such such a good point i think that is where the big difference lies and funny enough, when, we, when we spoke to naji the other day yeah then she was saying that um when she was growing up the family philosophy was if you're going to kill an animal, you have to make sure that you honor the animal and, and also use all of it that you can. And I think, you know, in the, if you like, in the civilizing inverted commas world, we've picked the nice bits, haven't we? We say, well, you know, we'll have fillet steak or we'll only have to the tomatoes that are perfect. And yet it's nonsense. You know, if yeah. we're growing stuff, we should be eating it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's like life. Life is full of ugly bits, too. You can't take have all, the, have all the beautiful bits, isn't it? So I really think learn to work with what is offered, you know, and with the ugly, ugly vegetables and fruit, you can actually use them for things where it doesn't really matter what it looks like. It tastes yeah. just as good. And I found often the ugly things taste better than the good looking things. <laughs> That's a, that's a very good philosophy. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how you doing that, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it. When you say right, okay, if, if if I gave you, well, for example, when we yeah. gave you the barbecue challenge, yeah. how do you go about what? What's the thought process to get you started? So, um, because you talked about how how can you use a barbecue all year round? So I wanted to do something to encourage people, like keep it really simple. Sausages are just so easy. You don't have to marinade or prep anything you can so and that's the kind of Swedish culture and then cabbage cabbage just such a humble thing I like to highlight things people forget oh I've got a cabbage and oh, what am I going to do with cabbage cabbages could be delicious so I was kind of thinking like winter vibes cozy vibes simplicity simplicity is really key for me because nowadays if I'm cooking for my family I often just open the fridge I'm like right kids are hungry they're going to be hungry in half an hour what have I got they will eat. What can I cook quickly? Because I've always loved that, that, again, coming back to when I first was aware of you. Yeah. The, the illustrations that you do. In the way you do, do, you, do you create recipes in an illustrative way? In your head, are you kind of, are you sketching? That's more when I'm like developing recipes for a cookbook or a TV show. So it's less when I'm like everyday cooking. So often I've always got a little notebook with me and I'll write some flavors in my head and then sometimes I like if it's a cake or like a particular look I want and I'll do a little sketch really rough you know um, nothing fancy um, so I do work with visual aspects of things uh, a lot and uh, as a slight aside yeah. do you have a particular favorite kind of notebook because I'm quite obsessed with stationery oh oh you got me there I've been to Japan several times and oh my goodness in Japan they have it's stationery heaven 
I've had to buy extra suitcases because oh, I've bought I so I much. Believe it. Stationary porn. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I love a good pen. I'm really particular about pen and the way oh, it feels okay. when you write with it and draw it, and like you get a different sensation depending on the kind of ink, the nib, the pressure. You know, if you get felt versus a hard ball or a soft uh-huh. ball, I mean, that's like, yeah, you're going. What, what, into- what's, what's your go-to pen then? If you if you're if you're in a stage, what what's the one that you if you see? Um, you okay, I really like a Pentel with a four point zero ball. Okay, all right. Um, do you go do you go black or do you go blue? Um, four point well, zero ball. Black, okay. black. Okay. I think black. You can't go wrong with black. Pentel have some amazing pens, and they have some felt tip ones which the sensation writing with those on paper. Have you ever written on stone paper before? Yes, I have. I, I like that sensation. That is like, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Because I, 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 well, I, like, I like those um, high-tech um, point ones, yes. whatever, the, the, yeah, 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 they're yeah. a nice pen. And oh. at the moment, I'm writing my notes with a pen that slightly disappointed me. Um, Rachel and I are kind of on Zoom so we can see each other. Yeah. So this, is, uh, this is a... Paul Smith Karen Dash um, pen, Ooh. which I thought was going to be a rollerball, yeah. but it's actually it's actually a biro, and it, oh. it's a little bit disappointing ah. to write with. Yeah, it's I can a, imagine. I mean, it's pretty. Look at that; it's lovely. I mean, uh, uh, listeners, basically, what you get is this long pen. Then it's got um, it's got dark green, pale green, pink, uh, mustard red, and then a blue and three blues at the end, and it's very pretty. Um, and it's also got Paul Smith written on it. But then, because it, it's a biro, it's a dis. Oh, Rachel's reaching for pens. Oh, I've got. Okay, so I've got to show you show okay. you this new yellow one I got from this amazing stationery store in London. It's called Delphonics, and it's Delphonics. It's yellow. I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely writing this down because I, I love stationery. Okay, I don't know if you can hear this. Hang on, I've got to put it near my microphone. Oh. Can you hear that? That click? Yeah, yeah that's good. It is, <laughs> but it's yeah. actually it's actually a pencil. It's very nice to draw and write with. But the what's, click... what's, it, what's it? What's it feel like in your hand? Because uh, uh, I so uh, I, my thing is because that looks like it's uh, it's, it's hexagonal, octagonal. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, because my pen that I'm holding is as well, and I find it a little bit disappointing at times. I like I prefer a round pen. Okay, so I mean the weight, it's very light, it's oh, not heavy, yeah. but I have some fountain pens which are heavy, and and you have to unscrew it, and it, it's yeah. like, so I love it's for me. It's also I have some old cameras like a Pentax K1000. The click and the winding on because it's a film uh-huh. camera. That sensation. That's a noise. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's, um that's, that, that's, that's a nice noise. <laughs> yeah. But but I honestly I kind of I'm obsessed. It's notebooks for me. I because yeah. uh, I like I'm a bit of a, a moleskin fan. I kind of I yes. think, uh, I like to go to the shop wherever I am in the world. If I see yeah. a shop, I'll go and buy one. So oh, I yeah. bought that one in New York. I bought that one in Berlin. Okay. At the moment, I'm using this. Again, viewers and listeners, I'm sorry you can't kind of see this. I bought this ages ago. Yeah. It's really pretty. So it's a, basically it's a black, soft, kind of linen-covered uh, notebook. And on the front, it's black with a red star on the front. And on the back, it has a blue star. And I love it. And it's really, it's so nice. It's, it's like a soft, so- soft, soft bound. Yeah. So you can yeah, infuse yeah, yeah. with you. Yeah, 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 I yeah, think... Yeah. A more softbound than a hardbound one. I, I, um, I agree with you on that. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. There's, there's a tactile quality to them, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm always disappointed with a cardboard one that starts to fray. Oh, God. Don't get me going on those. I know. I know. Rachel, <laughs> I know. Uh, right. So where were we? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> right. What's the best dish you've ever made? Oh, my goodness. The best dish? I don't know. It's that's how. Ooh. 
Um, All right, then what's, what's the dish? If you, if you were going to cook for me, so I'm going to come round to yours. And yeah. you're gonna say, you know what? I want to cook something that, that, that I love to make. Okay, do you have dietary restrictions? No, good grief, Okay, no. just checking, what time of the year is it? Oh, my goodness. Okay, it's now. So it's was, now? It was, it was okay, yeah. are you coming to Sweden to see me? Fine, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. obviously. So we're in the countryside. So yeah. I would offer you some game. Mm-hmm. So Sweden, very much part of Swedish culture, is game, it's local, moose, probably moose. And I do you a Hörmann's uh, beef. But with oh moose. Yeah. So it's, uh, but I do a version. Yeah. So Hörmann's beef is a traditional Swedish dish. It's called sailor's beef. And it's the beef stew sailors would have in Sweden. But I would use moose. And so it's a slow cooked moose in like red wine and juniper berries and herbs. And so it kind of, everything falls apart. And then wow. I do you um, potatoes mousse, uh, which is a, uh, uh, mashed potatoes with lots of butter, of course. <laughs> of course, yeah. Of <laughs> and then course. lingonberries and pickled cucumbers with dill. Um, so all kind of the Swedish flavors, really hearty, comforting. And then, um, oh, you know what? We could go fishing because we're okay. by the lake. We'll go fishing. We'll catch a perch. We'll put it on the barbecue. We'll make some fish wraps with can- uh, chanterelles because we can pick some chanterelles as wow. well. So. That would be for lunch, but in the afternoon we'd go like foraging <laughs> and fishing and we would get some fish from the lake, some perch and some chanterelles and we'd fry the chanterelles in butter and we simply kind of put the perch on the, on the barbecue and then you get some Swedish flatbreads and you put the perch in, great bit of horseradish on top, the sh- butter chanterelles in there, wrap it up and that would be like um, a little afternoon snack. So yeah. That- is <laughs> but to be honest with you, that is you couldn't have pitched better for me because anything that's slow cooked and fallen apart, I'm right there. Mashed potato with butter. I mean, for me, the 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 rules on mashed potato are whatever weight of potato, thirty percent of that weight should be butter. That's the way you get kind of like perfect mashed potato every single time, and then. Any kind of wrap I like, and just that simplicity of buttered mushrooms and some fish, and that little bit of zip from the horseradish. Beautiful, love it. That's yeah. that is absolutely, <laughs> absolutely perfect. And what what's what's the biggest disaster you've had, or have you not? Okay. You may not. I've had lots of disasters. My life is full of disasters. So I don't publicise it so well. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was running the little Paris kitchen, like um, testing recipes and having people over. At one point, I had some um, food critics round. So nervous. It's just two people and the apartment's really, really small. So there's nowhere to hide. So if I'm cooking in the kitchen, they can actually just see me cooking. And I decided, you know what, I'm really going to impress this food critic and I'm going to make a souffle. And I've made souffles many, many times. But at that time, I had this little toy, like this really small toaster oven. You know those small toaster <laughs> yeah, ovens? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So I could do like a half a roast in there, like, like a small uh, spring chicken, a poussin. It's all right. Souffle, two souffles. And, you know, you, you make your souffle and everything, yeah. put it in the oven. Timing's great. The, the, the main course and starter went really well. They're loving the wine, all happy, lovely, lovely. And then the souffle, I like took it out. It was just all... It was awful. It was like, yeah. But the lady was so lovely. I just like, I had some amazing creme fraiche, some fresh fruit, and I just whipped up like a layered kind of creme fraiche, very fruit. But you learned from your failure, Rachel Koo. Which, I which did. Said that, that is the way that you run your life. So you learn that failure. All right. Okay. So so the final part yes. um, of the show, I mean, I th- I'm really looking forward to this. So what, what I get all of our guests every single week mm. is is your your hidden gem. 
I don't want a posh restaurant. I don't want a yeah. fancy restaurant. It's that little place. It might be a patisserie. It might be a little cafe. It might be a takeaway stall, wherever it might be. Somewhere that you would say, in reality, you don't really want to tell anybody about, but you're going to tell us. And we're going to do a list. So as you go through, you know, Gop gave us an amazing little um, uh, Asian cafe in Chinatown. And then Nadia gave us a, a great site as well. So where are you taking us and what are we having? This is a hard one. I was like, how can I just, like, I didn't know, I know who pick to pick one, first. No. So I, like, okay, I'm just going to tell you the one which I've been craving loads because I haven't been back in the UK for like over last time I was here was in February I got yeah. here I, like I came to London last week it was my first time and I had an hour no I had half an hour to kill before I started shooting another tv show and it we were shooting near Borough Market and there's this place called May May uh, London which is uh -huh. a, a Singaporean kind of stand in Borough Market and my dad's Malaysian and Singapore and Malaysian flavors, there are a lot of crossovers. Um, and throughout uh, lockdown, I was like, I couldn't go. I had to order. They started making um, spice mixes and condiments. So I, I managed to order some just to get a little bit of that flavor. And uh -huh. so they do a nasi lemak. Do you know what Which a nasi lemak So that's a, um, a, a, a rice dish. So it's yep. coconut rice with fried anchovies. Um, then wow. a sambal paste, which is like a fiery chili fermented paste, often with fermented shrimp, so really fiery. They do crispy fried chicken on top oh. with cucumbers, hang on, crunchy peanuts with that saltiness and crunch. And then, hang on, did I remember all the elements? A fr uh, fried egg. So you've got wow. all this crunch, wow. creaminess, salty, fieriness, all of these elements, which for me, it's like the national dish of Malaysia normally it's wrapped in a banana leaf so that's the tradition and you go eat it at the street markets like the hawker stalls so for me I was like oh I miss that I love it and I was like I had to eat it so fast because I had to get to, <laughs> to, to the location we were filming I was like quick but must eat must eat must eat it was so good and um, unfortunately that only opened I think Wednesday to Sunday so I was shooting yesterday at Borough Market, but it was a Monday, so I couldn't oh, eat there. No. <laughs> that I mean, that sounds amazing. That sounds absolutely incredible. That's, that's a brilliant dish. I knew that yours would be fantastic. Because I, I think that, <laughs> that whole thing, you know, whenever um, just reading about your background, your cultural influences, and it's great, you know, it, to sort of recap what we've learned about you today is the fact that you are incredibly entrepreneurial, that, you know, you made a big decision to kind of quit what you did. You then worked your backside off to pay your way through producery school in Paris. You then got kind of work, working as a stylist. You then pitched a book idea on the back of the book idea, you put a TV idea, and you continue to do that. You now are kind of living in Sweden. And the, the flavours that we've talked about today, we've had fantastic barbecue. We've had an amazing kind of slow-cooked bit of mousse that you're making for me. We're going fishing for perch with some beautiful chanterelles. And then you sent us to the most amazing stall for some last nasi lemak, which just sounds absolutely out of this world. So so to, to finish, Rachel, what's next then? What, what, what happens next in the world of Rachel Koo? So... People must think, oh, if you're successful, you know, everybody just sees what you are on social media. But behind it, it's like the swan, you know, paddling underneath, uh -huh. mad, mad, mad. And I'm still like out there pitching ideas, knocking on doors. Like, you know, if you want to work nowadays, nothing falls in your plate. I'm a true believer in like just going out there and, and like, 
asking and pitching and like if you don't ask you're not gonna get it's so lovely to see you um and honestly i i am gonna come to soccer i've always wanted to go so i i, I promise you when when we can actually start traveling again yes. i am coming i'm you know i i'm, I'm let, let's go out and let's have some fun in stockholm okay come in the autumn we could do crayfishing that's like at the end of summer that's also fun Okay. Um, or you, we could do ice fishing. That, that's in the winter. So when it really, so January, February time, you know, and we could do the sauna and you cut the hole in the water and you run from the sauna and jump in the ice cold water if you're up for that. Yeah, I think I'm busy that weekend. <laughs> I think I'm washing my hair. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Rach, always, always lovely to speak to you. Take you care. Too. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Isn't she a superstar? Thanks so much to Rachel for joining us on Grilling. What inspirational drive she has. And I love the fact her passion for food is almost matched by her passion for pens and notebooks, uh, like me. And how good did that lunch she's going to make me when I visit her in Sweden sound? Uh, moose stew and barbecue perch, delicious. Hopefully, her love of outdoor cooking has encouraged you to discover what's possible on a Weber grill. Head to Weber.com for plenty more ideas about what you can achieve yourself. There are literally tens and tens of fantastic recipes and loads and loads of tips. And if you head to Weber.com slash grilling, not only will you find details of the competition, you'll also be able to get a free barbecue Bible cookbook with the purchase of selected accessories. We'll be back again next week talking to Ainsley Harriet, one of the most lovely and charismatic people in the biz, and a few surprises too. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer, Zach Brown. <laughs>